Welcome to Top Hat STEM Chat. This is our Austin P. College of STEM podcast, bringing you everything focused on the college, its faculty, staff, and students, and the impact they are having on the world. I am Colby Wilson, and on today's episode, 90 Seconds of STEM and an interview with Michael Northington, an Austin P. alum currently working for Optum, who was a 2022 Outstanding Young Alumnus Award recipient from the APSU Office of Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy. But first, celebrating our wins. This is where we highlight our faculty, staff, and students who won an award, grabbed a grant, were placed on a committee, or were otherwise recognized for their expertise, hard work, and singular genius. Biology professor and executive director and co-founder of the Southeastern Grasslands Institute, Dr. Dwayne Estes, has been named an honorary member of the Garden Club of America. The Garden Club of America is a nonprofit national organization that comprises 199 member garden clubs with nearly 18,000 members who devote energy and expertise to projects in their communities and across the U.S. Alumna Casey Dial went from the couch to the Olympic trials in boxing, winning the 2023 Women's National Championships Senior Female Novice title along the way. That story is up on APSU.edu. Austin Peay Society of Physics Students Chapter recently earned an Outstanding Chapter Award from the SPS National Office, a designation given to less than 10% of the SPS chapters at colleges and universities across the globe. Congrats to Malia Lanier and the entire chapter. Dr. Kalina Dunkel received the Inclusion Champion Award at Austin Peay's 2nd Annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast. Dr. Dunkel, Associate Dean for the College of STEM and a Professor of Geology, received the award for her significant contributions to promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion on campus. Specifically, Dr. Dunkel helped establish the Co-STEM Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee in 2020, which has worked together campus-wide data on diversity, sponsor inclusion events, and recommend improvements to the university's climate. And finally, congratulations to Dr. Mahesh Palakanda, whose chapter Biocar-Based Polymer Composites, a Pathway to Enhanced Electrical Conductivity, was recently published in Biocarbon Polymer Composites. We love to see our folks get published. We absolutely love to see it. And those are just a few of our wins in the last few days and weeks since we last talked to you. If you have more that I'm not aware of, send those along to wilsonrc at apsu.edu. And we'll take a break and be back with alum Michael Northington of Optum right after this. If there's a question bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain, you need a test. Yeah, think up a test. If it's possible to prove it wrong, you're going to want to know before too long, you'll need a test. Our guest today hails from Clarksville, but now resides in Colorado, where he works as a data scientist for Optum. Told he's quite good one, and judging by his credentials, I'd wager that's accurate. Michael Northington, welcome to Top Hat STEM Chat. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk about your experience at Austin P a little bit. Uh, graduated in 2009, summa cum laude with a double major in math and physics. Um, I don't know much, but that seems kind of difficult to pull off. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I had, uh, um, I, uh, so I actually have like pretty close family connection to Austin P. I've had, uh, my, uh, my dad's dad went to school there in the thirties when it was Austin P normal. And then my parents went there, uh, sisters went there, several friends and family. And so I kind of grew up around the school and, 
uh, decided to go there for um, for math uh, or initially for physics. Um, found out after I got there that to get a math major, it only require like a few more classes. So I decided to go that route and then um, ended up going to grad school for math. So I guess it was a good decision to, to add that part to it. <laughs> what were some of your academic and extracurriculars while you were here? Um, well, as far as extracurricular, I was um, <clears throat> I was in Sigma Chi, the fraternity. I think that's one of the reasons I know you from Greek life. And uh, I know, uh, you know, I met um, a lot of people that way. Um, as far as academic stuff, I uh, was in a couple of the, the clubs. I think Del Square Psi was the physics club. Um, they did a couple of events a year, like the ghost Halloween event and stuff like that, that, uh, that I took part in. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, was heavily involved with, uh, um, doing events on campus, a lot of it through the fraternity and then going to a lot of the sporting events and stuff like that too. Who are some of the influential figures on your development during your time here? Yeah, you, you might have to, um, you know, award ceremony, play me off here because I have a lot of, <laughs> I have a lot of people. <laughs> Um, I was prepared for this question, if you couldn't tell. Um, so uh, Jaime Taylor, who used to be the head of the physics department, and then he was uh, the head of what is now the, the STEM college. Um, and then he was the interim provost for a while, and now he's president at Lamar University. He's one of the big reasons I ended up at Austin P. I, I probably was going to go to Austin P anyway, but when he found out I was interested in the physics department, he kind of reached out and told me some about the program and he taught some classes I was in, stayed connected to me, uh, helped me out with making some decisions through grad school and stuff as well. Um, Tristan Denley was actually, he was the provost when, uh, when, when we were there and he uh, is a mathematician in training or by training. And he, uh, he helped me kind of um, navigate the, the grad school process, um, which, you know, I, I don't think he had a lot of direct, student connection, but he found out that I was interested in going to grad school for math. And uh, he had previously worked at the University of Mississippi, which is where I ended up going for a few years and recommended it as a good place. And uh, he actually gave me a, a math book to read over the summer before I went to grad school. So that was kind of cool. Um, as far as like my day to day at Austin P, there were so many people. Um, Matt Jones was my math advisor, Dr. Jones, and he probably was super annoyed with me by the time I graduated because I used to just stop by the office and ask him questions all the time uh, about grad school or just random math questions. Um, but he was as good of an advisor as I could have ever asked for. Loretta Griffey, um, she taught my APSU 1000 class that uh, actually your wife, Sarah, was our mentor or TA or whatever that position was called for that class. And uh, uh, Loretta kind of stayed in touch with me throughout my whole time at Austin P and thereafter going through grad school. Um, Alex King, the physics department chair, I uh, had a bunch of classes with him. Um, he's one of the best uh, like classroom professors I've ever, ever had. And uh, similar to the other people that I mentioned, he kind of had an open door policy. You could go talk to him about random physics questions or whatever. And he was a really good resource. Um, Samuel Jader, who just, I think he just left the math department to go to Lamar, but he was the uh, math department chair for a little while. Um, he gave so many of us opportunities to do undergraduate research, which is, uh, um, 
otherwise like it might have made the grad school decision like a little bit more cloudy because I didn't really know what kind of research people did in math uh, and he was also one of the nicest guys ever and then there were so many good professors that I had for classes that maybe I didn't have such a close relationship with but uh, like Kirk Mincer, Justin Olgitz, Kevin Schultz was in the physics department I don't think he's here anymore um, and then several others that I, I am leaving out but uh, yeah there were there are a lot of people that made the time there uh, time at Austin P very um, they made it very easy on me. <laughs> Felt like I had a lot of people I could talk to. You mentioned the opportunity for undergraduate research. What kind of advantage does that give you when you start looking for graduate schools that you have some of that under your belt? Uh, it's it's huge. It's it's like um, it looks great on a resume for the one part, like if you're if you're applying to different schools, but you get so much you get such a different side of things when you're doing research versus what you get in a classroom you know you're not you might you have to often like give presentations so you have to learn to talk about math you have to learn to, or physics or whatever it is you have to learn how to present things to people who might not be experts um it's kind of like the difference between taking a class and teaching a class like when you're teaching you have to be prepared to answer a lot of questions you have to be ready to you, you don't just have to get by and like learn the minimum that you need to pass a test um, so just the experience of doing research is very, um, uh, it's, you really grow a lot in the field just by doing that. But it's also, uh, when you're applying to have something like that, where you can be like, not only have I done well in my classes, but I've actually started the process of building, you know, like a research resume. Um, I mean, it's, it, any, any grad school is going to be happy to hear about that if that's the way you decide to go. And any industry job is going to be happy to see that too, because it's, it's a kind of outside of the box uh, academic activity, activity. And you don't get that at a lot of universities. Like a bigger school, you know, you, you may think, oh, well, SEC School X is a brand name. But like, especially for undergrads, there's just no kind of opportunity for that, is there? No. And if you... Um, if there are opportunities, they um, they might be like extremely competitive. You know, it might be that like a teacher has a, a a lab or has something where they can hold three or four students, but at that school you might have five hundred students in the department, and so it might be a lot harder to get those positions. Whereas here, I mean, there were plenty of people who were interested in in working with you. I mentioned Dr. Jader in particular because he brought a lot of us in in the math department under his wing. Um, but there were other people who had, you know, he worked in an area called differential equations, but there, there were people who had statistical projects and stuff like that too. Um, and it was kind of like, if anybody was interested, they would find a place. Like if, if somebody showed up and they were interested in doing some sort of research, I think that they wouldn't be pushed away. Whereas at the other schools, it might be, you know, they only have spots for a few people. Post Austin P you go to Mississippi, as you alluded to. What led to the decision to go there in particular? I'm always interested to find out what people were looking for when they start the postgrad process. Yeah. Um, so I had applied to a bunch of schools and I got into, I actually was considering going to NYU. They had a program that I really liked for, for math, um, but I was enrolled uh, or I was accepted as a master's student um, in their master's program and they don't fund their master's students. So um, just taking out loans to live in New York was going to be a crazy amount of money. So I was I was pretty set that that's what I wanted to do. 
but I started talking to people around the department, some of the people that I've already mentioned, and, um, you know, they recommended applying a few other places. And I, I talked to Dr. Dimley, who I mentioned before, and he was like, you know, I think you'd be a good fit at Ole Miss. There's good research opportunities. Um, you'll probably be able to get in and they have a decent amount of scholarships um, or, or uh, assistantships and things like that. Um, and I, um, you know, it was a tough decision at the time. And part of the reason that I made it was financial uh, because I did get some assistance down there. Um, but I went, uh, you know, I, I decided to go and just absolutely fell in love with the place. <laughs> and in hindsight, it's one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, the, uh, the campus itself is beautiful. The, I fell in love with the football program, going to games at the Grove and stuff like that. Made a lot of good friends down there, some of them that I'm still in like weekly contact with and stuff. Um, and uh, I got to do, I got to um, go to a department that was, it was different than the department at Austin P, but there were still people who were very welcoming to, uh, you know, work on research projects and to uh, to kind of give more hands-on guidance. Um, I couldn't say anything bad about the the program at NYU that I was considering. I didn't go there, um, but uh, I know that a lot of times uh, it's kind of you're thrown in the lion's den. You just kind of have to fend for yourself, go find your own go find your own work and stuff. You, you won't necessarily have uh, people that are, are working as close with you as, as what I got there at Ole Miss. And then post Ole Miss, it's back into Tennessee, Vanderbilt on the doctoral journey. Was, was the plan always a doctorate or when did you, when did you decide that was the, the direction? Yeah. So I actually was in, uh, at Ole Miss, I was in their PhD program. Uh, I did set out when I went to grad school, uh, you know, planning to get a PhD. Um, I, um, the, the way that a lot of the math PhD programs are set up, you, you get a master's in the process and some of them have different requirements. Some of them are just classroom based and some of them you actually have to write like a, a master's thesis. And, um, at Ole Miss, I did, uh, do, do some research uh your, your lights just went off yeah my lights just randomly go off and i i don't have anything to throw at the little sensor to make it realize that i'm still in here so i do this in the dark a lot fair enough <laughs> um the uh um yeah so the um i i i was in their phd program um i knew that the two-year mark was kind of when most people will meet the requirements for a master's and I knew going into it that I was going to consider applying to some more places because there's um, just different um, different research opportunities at different schools. Um, I ended up finding a, a professor that I really, really liked at Ole Miss, and I did some research and I wrote a master's thesis, which uh, I don't think you had to do. I think you could have gotten it with the, without actually writing a thesis. And I really liked working with him, but he had gotten his PhD at Bandy. And when I told him I was considering, uh, you know, applying to some more places, he was very pro going there because they had um, some um, re different um, research opportunities than, than what I was going to get at Ole Miss. And so even though I liked working with him, I wasn't totally set that that's what I wanted to continue doing, the, the area that I was working in. Um, so uh, talking it over with a few people, including the person that I was actively working with. And they all kind of said, you know, Vandy would be a good place to go. It, it made the decision kind of easy, especially 
my sisters were both living in Nashville at the time. My parents are in Clarksville, so um, I uh, it was nice to come home to. At Vandy, you did a lot more teaching, right? Uh, I taught some at Ole Miss, um, but I did teach four or five classes when I was at Vandy. I think I taught on average one class a year and maybe TA'd some too. Um, so yeah, I, while I was at Ole Miss, um, I think I taught maybe one class the, the two years I was there. While you're still doing your own studies and also juggling teaching other people, how difficult is that? Because I don't think we always uh, give it its proper due. It, it can be tough. Um, I think that's something where um, going through school at Austin P really helped me because I put a real emphasis on teaching, like trying to go out of my way to um, or trying to put a lot of time into it. I know that, you know, if you, you go to a research institution, some people kind of teach in spite of everything else, they don't necessarily want to teach, but it's part of their job that they have to do. Um, but I had so much fun, like taking the classes at Austin P and getting to know the people who were involved. And then, like I said, just like being able to ask them questions about other areas of math or, or grad school. So I wasn't, um, uh, you know, I, I, I really like took the duty uh, strongly that I, I had this opportunity to teach these people. So I, I put a lot of effort into building good slides for class or building homework assignments that weren't just like copied straight out of the textbook and stuff that really made people think. And I think it worked out pretty well. I had um, good reviews when I was teaching at Vanderbilt and, and then later at Georgia Tech and stuff. And uh, I think kind of worked out. Uh, it must have worked out, especially at Vanderbilt. You got the Bryant Award for Excellence in Teaching. <laughs> yeah, the, that was um, – so they give that award – for uh, a grad student teacher um, every year. And yeah, that was that was very cool to get. I mean, I really enjoyed being in front of a classroom and stuff. And so to get rewarded for that was very cool. Did you know you wanted to continue in the classroom post-grad or were you thinking about getting out into something different? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I, I think every step of the way I considered what, opportunities might be there in industry, even like graduating from Austin P. I was pretty sure I was going to go to grad school, but I at least like kind of Googled around, you know, what, what can you do with a math degree or with a physics undergrad degree? Um, I think every step of the way I got like more intrigued with leaving academia and going into industry. Um, and when it came time, when I was graduating from Vanderbilt and applying to positions, I actually only applied to about three uh, postdoctoral positions. And the one that I really wanted was the only one that I got an offer from, which was Georgia Tech. Um, and uh, if I wouldn't have gotten that offer, I think I probably would have tested the waters of like trying to find an industry job. But that one was the perfect fit as far as location, as far as the research that I wanted to continue. Um, it's a it's a great school. And um, uh, so, you know, that's why why I ended up down there. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the Georgia Tech years and kind of being that young teacher, fresh out, freshly minted PhD and getting into that environment full time. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say it that way, because um, when I started teaching at Ole Miss, the first class that I ever taught, I had students who were 
older than me, actually. I think I was 21 when I taught my first class. So I had some students who were actually older than me. Um, and by the time I finished at Ole Miss, I did not feel young anymore because uh, I would like make a joke about a movie that I had seen back in the day and none of my students would have ever seen that before. So it was kind of like from the time I was there, the students outgrew me, which I guess everybody who teaches goes through that at some point. But um, uh, yeah, it was um, those those postdoctoral positions can be very different depending on where you are. Mine was a a mix of teaching and research. And so I was still carrying on some of the research that I did during my PhD dissertation. Um, and then, you know, tacking on some new projects as well. And I was teaching uh, a class or two each semester. And mostly they were, um, you know, in Georgia Tech's a big engineering school. So mostly it was like I was teaching some of the fundamental math courses that a lot of the engineering students had to have. Uh, I got to teach a couple of higher level math classes that were like more math majors and and, and stuff like that uh, as well. So I got a nice exposure to teaching like different um, different levels of classes for different people. Um, and also being at such a big engineering school, I got to um, uh, kind of uh, branch out a little bit with my research and do a little bit more applied work instead of the the more like purely theoretical math stuff that I was doing before. As you're teaching some of these more base level classes for these people, is it, does it become difficult for you as somebody who's operating at a very, very high level math wise to kind of make a more practical application to these concepts, to these, to these students who just aren't there yet? I, um, so what, what I've noticed with teaching, uh, Every like even if I taught so there was one class called linear algebra that I taught several semesters of and every semester I thought you know I'll just reuse the same slides and same notes and stuff but every semester something changed so some years it was like the student population would change a little bit I would have people who were more interested in like a different type of engineering sometimes it was as simple as the classroom would change and one year I was in this massive lecture hall that seated like 400 and I was teaching um uh, uh, I think I had like 120 students or something. Um, so I couldn't really like write on a board because nobody could see it. It was like in a theater or something. So I had to like do everything on these big projector screens. Um, and then another time I had a similar number of students in the class, but it was a much smaller classroom. And in that case, like I shifted a lot to, to actually writing, writing on the board and stuff. As far as practical applications, I mean, with math, you get some of that stuff for free because a lot of math was developed to, to solve real world problems. And I tried to work as much of that into my lectures as I can. It's very easy to make math extremely dry and just like, here's a technique, go memorize it, go, go do this. But I really, like for me personally, uh, math got more interesting once I started taking physics classes and I saw like, how can you actually use this to, to do something? Um, and then uh, going along further, like learning about statistics and data analysis, like seeing seeing how you can actually learn things um, about some sort of system from from using math. And so I tried to incorporate as much of that as I could. Some of the lower level courses, you have to get through a certain amount of things at a fixed time. Like they're it's not like not necessarily like preparing somebody for a standardized test, but it's like everybody has to get through a certain number of chapters uh to say that they can advance to the next class so 
sometimes those were so rushed that it was hard to work in the practical examples, but I tried to do the best I could. While you were at Georgia Tech, you also got involved with a program at Brown University, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what computer vision is? <laughs> yeah, so computer vision is um, it's an area of like machine learning or artificial intelligence where you're applying it, you're applying those skills to videos or images. So things like facial recognition, things like self-driving cars, they have to detect stop signs or, uh, you know, people walking across the street or something like that. Um, people who work in computer vision are the people who go on to work in those kinds of jobs. They, they, um, so figuring out how to identify certain things in images like, a if you have an iPhone, it's probably the same on other phones now, but if you have a picture of like a flower or a dog or something, uh, there's a little, a little icon you can click on and it'll try to identify what type of flower it is or what type of dog it is. Um, those kind of algorithms that, that are behind that are all um, computer vision. How did you get involved with this program? Um, I had, so my, my research um, was, I, I would say I work in applied math, but maybe an engineer would think I was still like super theoretical math. <laughs> um, I didn't have like hands-on data sets that I was really work that I was like running algorithms on and getting, getting results. But the math that I was doing was close enough to like certain areas of data science or data analysis that it was still considered applied math. And I always wanted to, I kind of had this break where I started as a physics major, then I went math and I, I kind of felt like I was always being pulled back towards more of the applied side. Um, so um, I found out about this program at, uh, so it's, it's Brown University. They have an institute called ISERM and they, it's a, like a math institute and they have semester programs in different areas. And it can be anywhere from very theoretical math to very applied uh, math. And found out about this program in computer vision. I was getting close to the end of my postdoc at Georgia Tech, and I was considering going into industry jobs. And I thought this would be a really nice way to test the waters because I can go and learn this very hands-on um, side of you know data science or data analysis or machine learning, whatever you want to call it. And um, But I can do it in an academic setting that I'm already comfortable with. And so I went there for about four months and uh, learned a lot. Got to work with some really amazing people, and uh, yeah, it was it was an awesome experience. Also, Providence, Rhode Island, has some of the best food I've ever had in my life. What's Providence known for? Um, well, they have Brown University. They have. Uh, well, no, I meant food wise. <laughs> oh, food wise. Oh, well, tons of seafood. Tons of seafood. Um, you can get um, you know, whatever kind of seafood you want. There are a bunch of um, uh kind of foodie fancy restaurants there too for some reason i'm not really sure why but after this and you alluded to it you're kind of starting to look a little bit more at the industry world and you've made that transition as you go into optum how long have you been at optum or within the uhg family now about a little over four years uh, i switched in uh 2019 what's the tr what was the transition like i think after four years you've probably made it a little bit but as far as just the transition from academia to the industry world what was it like yeah so the the first part just going through the applications process and interview process took a long time i think i was on the market for about six months uh so it wasn't like you know i sent in a resume and got a job um there's there's kind of um uh 
the the skills for academia are not always the same as industry. So you have to convince somebody that without all of the backgrounds, uh, all the, you know, the industry background that, you know, you can, you can adapt and you can do those things. Um, once I found a job, um, the people that I work with made my life pretty easy. So we have uh, another mathematician on my team who I actually knew from grad school. Um, and then my, uh, so he understands like my skill set, and he understands more importantly, he understands what I don't know uh, because he's worked in healthcare since grad school, whereas I went and did the postdoc for a while and stuff. Uh, and then my boss um, does a really good job of kind of um, putting me on projects that uh, early on put me on projects where I didn't necessarily need a, a crazy amount of um, healthcare claims knowledge and that kind of stuff. Um, over time, you know, the I picked up a lot of that and. Still have a lot more to pick up, but uh, yeah, that's I, w I was very lucky with the transition because um, I had people who kind of put me where I should be or could be. Did that help make the application of your mathematic principles into this industry problem solving the, the whole thing just a little bit smoother for you? Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Um, I I think early on they threw me into problems where I really could just kind of go build some kind of model like I could just take some prepared data and like gonna go build some sort of model and do a bunch of model testing which is very much um, like a pure data skill um, and then later on like I got put on more projects where I actually needed to understand a bit more of where the data was coming from how it was organized and all that kind of stuff and so that's where that's where the, the health the healthcare knowledge kind of started to come in. What are some of the challenges and rewards that you found in going to industry post-academia? It's not going to be the same for everybody, but I really like kind of having a uh, a fixed time. Like, a, you know, I don't work exactly nine to five, but like having a nine to five. Um, one of the things that I found in the academic setting is, um, you know, you kind of have loose deadlines for most things. You're working on research projects with yourself or with other people, but it's not like, you know, we have to have a paper published in one month, so we have to get all this done. It's like, maybe we would want that to happen, but it doesn't always happen. Um, so sometimes at the end of the day, when I was working in the academic jobs, I would go home and I would feel like I should keep working because I didn't necessarily solve the problem that I was trying to solve. And maybe I never would because a lot of them are open-ended, uh, but I felt like I should continue doing that. So I feel like um, on the academic side, you know, I could separate a little bit at the end of the day and just be like, well, my work's done for now. Um, so like work-life balance stuff, I think has been a lot better. Um, having real world problems to solve, you know, hands-on data problems where I can kind of explain why I'm doing it a little bit more than just intellectual curiosity um, is, uh, is also a, a good feeling for me. Um, I really love pure math, but there were times where I felt like you know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure what anybody's going to do if I do or don't solve this problem. <laughs> like, I don't I don't necessarily know, uh, you know, what's going to happen after the fact. But um, I still, you know, I, I still loved it while I was doing it. But sometimes I did have those feelings. Have you ever given any thought to going back into the classroom one day? Uh, it's crossed my mind. I miss teaching. I miss being in front of a class. Um, and the, the open-endedness of research is nice in a lot of ways and it gives you a lot of freedom if you want to kind of change research areas and stuff. Um, I think probably the thing that I miss the most is the, is the teaching though. 
Um, and so I don't know, maybe sometime down the line, uh, but I'm not not gonna not gonna make any changes anytime soon. Uh, last thing before we get into some of the rapid fire stuff is in I believe it was 2022, you were named an APSU outstanding young alumnus. What did that mean to you to get that honor? Uh, it, it was so cool. Uh, so like I already mentioned before, I've got a long family connection to Austin P. Um, and in fact, my dad is a former alumni association president. So like, I mean, we, we grew up, I, I spent more time in the Dunn Center as a kid than like, I don't know, playing outside. Probably we were at basketball games all the time and stuff. Um, and just kind of grew up around the school. Um, what was also really cool were some of the people who got awarded on that same day. So the Adrian Parker, who received the same award that I did, um, I, you know, he was a couple of years older than me in the physics department when I came to Austin P and like kind of looked up to him. I did this research project at Fisk uh, University one summer, and I think he had just started grad school there. And I just remember him asking all these really good questions when we were presenting our projects. And I was like, man, I don't know that I would ever think about that. Uh, <laughs> so it was really cool to be named with him. Um, and like Bruce Myers, uh, who had been in you know the computer science department for for a while, he received an award the same day. So it was really cool to be be honored when when he was there. I never had a class with him, but I knew knew of him, and uh, uh, that was cool. So yeah, my my friend um, Brad Averitt, who I went to Austin P with, uh, nominated me for that. I'll be forever thankful for him, and he's doing a lot of good stuff in the advancement and alumni office right now too. What is your idea of happiness? Oh, um, <laughs> let's see. A couple of things come to mind. They all involve coffee and mornings. I'm a morning person. Um, all right, two things. One of them is getting to the first tee of a golf course in the morning before anybody else and the sun's just coming up and you know you've got the course to yourself. And then the other would be starting off a new hike with my, my wife and my son and, and my dog um, uh, going somewhere new and knowing you're going to see some cool stuff. What is your biggest fear? Well, uh, contrasting the hike thing, uh, I still have some weird issues with heights. Living in Colorado, that's not great, but probably like driving off the side of a mountain would be up there. <laughs> it's easy to do that in Colorado, too. Yeah, I know. Believe me, I know. As somebody as somebody who came from Tennessee, where every, every guardrail, every overlook has seven guardrails over it, going to Colorado and just being like, oh, I can peer off this mountain was, I'm sure that was a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, my, my wife grew up here, and uh, there have been times when I've had to make her drive through some spots that were a little sketchy. Uh, <laughs> I'll admit that. What might cause you to lie? Um, I don't know. Maybe uh, trying to avoid some embarrassment or something. I, I don't know. I can't think of a good example off the top of my head. <laughs> when and where were you happiest? Okay, well, the easiest answer, the obvious answers are like wedding day and the day that my son was born. Um, I'm going to give you a more adventurous one, though. Um, 2019, Tiger Woods won the Masters, and I was there with my now wife, who uh, I had only met about six months before. And for most of the time we had dated up to that point, I had actually been in Rhode Island, even though we met in Atlanta. So I got to fly home that weekend to Atlanta and drove to Augusta, went to the golf tournament, and then 
out of all the years that I would get to go with her for the first time, Tiger ended up winning. So that's definitely not as good as like getting married and having my son, but those are good. Uh, that was a really good memory. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good weekend. Yeah, that was awesome. What is the biggest risk you've ever taken? The career change was a big one. Um, I would say probably moving to Colorado, though. Um, I went to grad school in Mississippi, and then I worked in Atlanta. Uh, I went to Rhode Island, but that was for four months. It was temporary. I went to a couple of other places for school, but they were all temporary. Uh, Probably moving to Colorado um, was the biggest kind of leap of faith thing, leaving family in Tennessee and stuff like that. Just because there was, like, no real end date to it? Yeah, no real end date. Plus, um, you know, I didn't really know a lot of people out here. I've actually been lucky to have some friends from from Austin P move out here in the last couple of years, though. Uh, so we've got a little a little group here that I get to see pretty regularly. And then my wife's family's here and I get along really well with them. Um, but also it's a big, big risk because of all the mountains. Um, so. <laughs> Is there a recent act of kindness or generosity that had a big impact on you? Yeah, my... Um, uh, so, so I have a, a 10 or almost 11 month old son and, uh, I would have to, um, I would have to give it up to my mother-in-law. She, she watches Graham a couple of days a week and she, she drives to our house and watches him here. So I get to like have lunch with him and stuff. Um, I work from home. I work remotely. Uh, and, uh, I mean, she, she always says that we're like doing her a favor by giving her time with Graham, but. I mean, she's she's saving us a lot of money and time, and, and I get to see him a lot more because of it. So that would be up there. How would you prefer to die? Do I have to? Uh... <laughs> I mean, I not as... I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to do anything to influence it, but... but yeah, what, do, what, do, what are you doing? Well, it just seems like on a long enough timeline, it's going to happen to all of us eventually. Yeah. Um, maybe celebrating a hole-in-one. I just get too excited and... <laughs> you know, have a heart attack or something. I don't know. And I've still never made one. <laughs> if you were reincarnated, what would you like to come back as and why? Oh, man. Um, I think most of my life I would have said something extraterrestrial, like let me pop up on a different planet that nobody's seen or something. But now, I don't know, having, having kids changes a lot. Maybe like a dog and I could just like follow my son around or something. I don't know. <laughs> You have to put three things in a time capsule to represent your life and our era. What's going in there? There's an obvious answer here. My my wife does a really good job of putting together a uh, like a picture book every year that we've been together. So we get like a you know we have like a 2022 book and a 2023 book, and like if we take a trip, we'll put pictures in there from that. That would give people a pretty good record of of what I've what I've done in my life here. Uh, one of my most prized possessions, I'm actually looking at them right now. They're right behind my computer screen. Um, I've been really lucky to go to the, the Masters Golf Tournament a bunch, and I have a bunch of tickets from previous years. So I would throw that in there. I'm looking around my office to see if there's anything else. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. All right. I don't know why this just popped into my head, but I'll go with it. Um my family has this sourdough bread recipe that's kind of famous in Clarksville because my dad used to make, my mom and dad used to make like 200 loaves of it a year and give it out to like neighbors and stuff like that. Um, so I have made a way, way too much of this bread in my lifetime, but I would maybe throw the recipe for that in there. If you could make one significant change in the world, what would it be? 
I don't know exactly what it would look like, but I think it would be trying to make make our day to day a little more communal. Um, I think uh, a, I went through a pretty big change in my life when I was in grad school and met people from a bunch of different countries who had come to, you know, to study in, in our department. Um, you know, we had people from Armenia and China and India and Russia and like from all over places that I've never, never visited and probably won't be able to visit all of them in my lifetime. And um, it was amazing how easy it was to just communicate with everybody. It wasn't like they were completely different because they were from somebody else from somewhere else. But then they had also like very unique experiences to where they came from. Um, and so something about like making more situations like that where every, people are talking to people outside of their normal bubble. That'd be really cool. I think we could all afford to get out of our own bubble a little bit more often. Michael Northington, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, best uh, best wishes to you and your family in Colorado. Please be safe on the mountains. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Then my friend, you are going to need proof. Come up with a test. Yeah, you need a test. Don't believe it because they say it's so. If it's not true, you have a right to know. Put it to the test. Put it to the test. Yeah, test it out. Put it to the test. Yeah, put it to the test. Put it to the test. Put it to the test. Thank you to Michael Northington for taking some time to join us this week. Before we wrap up, It's time for 90 Seconds of STEM. Science on Tap is back on February 6th at Strawberry Alley Aleworks with Dr. Catherine Haas giving the pre-Valentine's Day lecture. Don't miss it. Doors open at 5 and the event begins at 5.30. We have two big February events to make everyone aware of. On Saturday, February 3rd, it will be College of STEM Night at the Austin P. Men's Basketball Game, which tips off at 4.15 p.m. We'll be giving away aviator sunglasses for all, lab coats to APSU students, and have plenty of things to do around the arena concourse throughout the event. Our second big event takes place February 19th in Sunquist, Co-STEM Career Night. All nine departments will put their best feet forward to educate students about STEM programs, involvement, and different paths for career development. The whole thing kicks off at 5.30 p.m. If you haven't, be on the lookout for the next Meish on the Mic at Einstein's in the UC. Dr. Kara Meish and a guest from the College of STEM have been hosting monthly lecture series on subjects of study, career opportunities, and some of the cool things and adventures they've been able to do throughout their careers. We just wrapped one up earlier today with Dr. Emma Beth Vaughn, and it was fantastic. And finally, in case you missed it, the GIS Center recently received a lot of well-deserved recognition for their work in the aftermath of the December tornadoes. Mike and Doug worked with local emergency management personnel to provide detailed damage assessments that normally take days or weeks to compile. A big shout-out to those guys and what they were able to do to help those affected. And that's it, your 90 seconds of STEM. Thanks for tuning in. Rate and review if you liked what you heard. Drop me a line at WilsonRC or at CWilson225 on X slash Twitter if you didn't. If there's somebody you want to hear from and learn more about, or if you're a College of STEM alum and want to get involved, get at me at one of those two places. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we will talk to you later. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. 
and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. 